Now before the feast of the Passover, Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. If I had to tag this text, church, and our exchange together, it would be the beauty of Christ's love. The beauty of Christ's love. The modern hymn writers, Keith and Christian Getty, have a song entitled, Don't Let Me Lose My Wonder. In the song, the Gettys point out the small and subtle things in the creative order that underscore the majesty and glory of God. And in the refrain, they sing so softly, do not let me lose my wonder. The Gettys understand how easy it is to stare in the face of God's glory and lose our sense of awe. We stare in the face of God's glory, seen in his redemption of lost sinners, and we have no sense of wonder. We stare in the face of, of God's glorious providence as he guides the circumstances of our lives, bringing about his glory and our good, and we have no sense of wonder. Church, we stare at God's sovereign preservation of our often weak and frail faith, and we have no sense of Ah, much of our spiritual maladies find their origin in a loss of awe for our great God and Savior. Much of our spiritual stagnation and spiritual lethargy is because we no longer look at our Lord with awe-filled eyes. Much of our getting trapped into chasing the bag and spending our mental energy on the cares of this world are due to the fact that we have lost the sense of wonder when we set our eyes on Jesus Christ. You hear Christ's exalted sermons and you are not moved. We have no awe. We sing songs that magnify the glory of Christ and his saving work, but, but it doesn't move us. We have no sense of awe. You have your daily devotions, and I, and I trust that some of you are very disciplined in that. But you don't leave out of there with a greater sense of Jesus, with, with heightened affections for Jesus. My prayer this morning is as we purposefully gaze on the beauty of Christ's love, that it will stir our hearts to joy-filled wonder. I pray as you see the breadth, the depths, and the height of the love of Christ, that we will be moved to heartfelt worship. When was the last time you raised your hands in worship, tears filled your eyes because you are so thankful that Christ is wonderful? I pray that he will restore our wonder. I pray that he would fill us with joy unspeakable. Lord, please restore unto us the joy of our salvation. In this text, which is the outset or the preamble to Jesus' upper room discourse, we are given three aspects of the love of Christ that show forth its beauty and magnanimity. Which, when truly understood, will move the believing heart to a greater treasuring of Jesus. 
If you see these in the text, if I do well to, to point them out, my prayer is that it will cause you to treasure Christ in a greater way. That you will love him more. That you will think of him more. That your life would be centered on him and not your own frail and often trivial pursuits. All right. Three aspects. I'll tell them to you and then I hopefully you'll see them in the text. From verse 1, the single verse, I want you to see the willingness of Christ's love, the particularity of Christ's love, and the completeness of Christ's love. I'll say it again. The particularity of Christ's love. I'm excuse me, the willingness of Christ's love, the particularity of Christ's love, and the completeness of Christ's love. The first aspect that I want us to see in the text is the willingness of Christ's love. Church, Jesus does not go to his passion kicking and screaming. He does not go to the cross as a powerless victim. He does not die as some casualty of cosmic child abuse. But the greatness of Jesus' love for those he had come to save led him to freely, without coercion or compulsion, die as a ransom for their sins. Nobody made him go, but he went because he loved you so. Mm. Notice verse 1. Now before the feast of the Passover, here John is, is setting the scene. Before the feast of Passover... Jesus knowing that his hour had come. For those of you that don't know, the feast of the Passover was the commemoration and the remembrance of uh, Israel's physical deliverance from Egyptian captivity. It was the day that the death angel passed, they were celebrating the day that death angel passed through the land of Egypt and everybody that did what they were supposed to, killed the lamb, spread the blood on the doorpost and on the lintel, what did the death angel do? It passed over their homes. But if you didn't have the blood covering you, come on. If you didn't have the blood covering you, they lost all of their firstborn children, the Egyptians did, and the firstborn of their livestock. So they were commemorating this. And John says it's just prior to that that Jesus knew that his time had come. Notice, it's prior to the Passover meal that John underscores Jesus' full awareness of his impending passion. He's fully aware. Notice what he says. John says, Jesus knowing, meaning that he was intimately acquainted with what was about to come. It means that he grasped and understood all that was about to go before him. He was not ignorant or confused about what lied before him. Jesus sees clearly what is going on. He's not caught off guard by the events. That will eventually lead to his passion. He is aware. Church, hear me. He is cognizant. Yeah. Now, what is our Lord aware of? John says that Jesus was aware that his hour had come. John has used this phrase, his hour, as a time indicator throughout his gospel. 
John has used this phrase to highlight the death and the subsequent glorification of the Lord Jesus Christ. In your own personal study, I want you to look at John 2 and 4, where Jesus first uses, where John first uses this phrase and he puts it in the mouth of Jesus. Uh, he's at the wedding of Cana of Galilee. They have run out of wine and, and Mary goes to Jesus and says, help. And Jesus responds to her this way, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet Come. We see this phrase again in John 7.30 and also in John 8.20 when those who opposed him became angry with him and sought to arrest him. And on both occasions we read, but no one laid a hand on him because his hour had not yet come. But then the narrative of John takes a twist because in John 12, 23, Jesus, uh, John tells us that, that the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. In the earlier portions of the narrative, his hour had not come yet. But John 12, 23 says his hour had come. And in our text, we read that Jesus was fully aware that his hour was no longer in the future, but it had come now. The phrase points forward. What does it point forward to? Jesus' subsequent death, resurrection, and ascension. Church, Jesus knows that the horrors of the cross are coming. He knows that he will become sin for mankind. He knows that the Father will turn his face from him. He is aware that he will die. He, he knows and is aware that he will be buried in a rich man's tomb. He is aware that his body will lie there for three days. He is aware that on the third day he will be resurrected with all power. He knows that 40 days later he will be ascended back to the Father. None of this is a surprise to our Lord. None of it catches him off God, but he does it. He does it because he loves us. Yes. This knowing of our Lord and his decisions to still go anyway underscores his willingness. He told Pontius Pilate that my kingdom is not of this world. His, he said, he says, if it was, my servants would have been fighting that I don't be, that I would not be delivered unto you. He said, well, my kingdom is not of this world. I, I, this, this is not where I'm, I'm seeking to, to set up my kingdom yet. So he allows himself to be taken. He, he didn't, he never once resisted arrest. He was willing, he was a willing participant in his own murder. He makes that clear. In John 10, 18, he says, no one takes my life, but I, I lay it down of my own accord. Paul points out this willingness too. He says, and being found in human form, he humbled himself. Nobody humbled him. He humbled himself. Our Lord was not humbled. He was not made to submit, but he did it of his own volition. He wanted to go to Calvary. This willingness was also prophesied by Isaiah in Isaiah 53. 
It says he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before his shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Church, the silence of the Lord indicated his willingness. The fact that he was fully aware of all that was to come and that he silently, without hesitation, with full submission, surrendered to his death, it speaks volumes of his love for you. Church, it was for you. That he died. It was for you. That he gave his life. Don't, don't miss that application before I go on. When you feel the most unloved, look to Jesus offering himself freely on the cross as a sacrifice for your sins. When you are trying to process the trauma of your father's constant failure, when you are working through your mother's abandoning you, when you are trying to heal from the uncle who snuck into your room and violated your innocence, look to the willingness of the Savior. Look to Jesus who, with you on his mind, set his face like a flint towards Calvary. The hymn that is overflowing in my spirit right now is, Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us. Oh, how he loves us all. Church, gaze upon the willingness of Christ and see the immensity of his love. And I want you, when you see that love, to joy in him. To let your heart be drawn up into worship of him. Worship is not a passive experience. It's not something that happens to you. It's with a grateful heart where we bring our praises to the sovereign God of the universe. All right. The willingness of Christ, love. That's the first aspect. What's the second aspect, pastor, as you're shouting at us? The second aspect of Christ's love is his, its particularity. So, so, so he was willing to go. He went freely for you. And so, so his love is, is, is centered on his willingness, but it's also a second aspect is that, that, that there's a specificity to his love. Look at, the, look at the text. John says this. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of the world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world. I want you to notice first who Christ has loved. Who has Christ loved? There's a sense in which God loved the world. Am I right? Right? And there's a sense that. That God, I got, I got theologians in here, so I just can't play around with the passage, right? I got to preach it the right way. There's a sense that God loves the world, Brother Glenn. You see it, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. We see it in other passages where uh, we read, he is the propitiation for our sins and not for our sins only, but for the sins of the world. But, but there is a, a different kind of love that a husband has for his bride. Listen, I love my whole family. Some of them, some of them get on my nerve, but I love my whole 
family. I love my church. And I love them deeply. We cry together. They watched me grow up as a preacher and they loved me. And I loved them back. But ain't no kind of, that, that love has nothing compared to my love for that girl right there. There's a special love that a husband has for his bride. God loves the world. But there is a special love that he has for his bride. I'm trying to encourage you today to help you to see he willingly went to the cross and he loves you in a particular kind of way. Oh, you think your faith is just something menial. No, 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 no. He loves you and is seen in its particularity. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that he would depart out of this world, having loved his own who were in the world, John makes clear here that the specificity of Christ's love is expressed to his own. And his immediate application has reference to the 12 disciples whose feet he was about to wash. But this love extends to those Jesus will refer to as those the Father has given me. You go to John 17, you'll find out, you find him saying, Father, the hour has come to glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, even as you gave him authority over all flesh, that to all whom you have given me, he gave eternal life. He also says in in John 6, 37 and 39, all that the Father gives me will come to me. And the one who he gives to me, I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all that he has given me, I lose nothing. But I'll raise it up on the last day. Those who are Jesus' own are those who the Father has given the Son. Now, those who the Father has given the Son are those whom the Father has chosen before the foundation of the world. This, when he says his own, he is pointing to the fact that before ever the world was, there were some who he had decided that he would set his love upon. Let me, let me let you read it in the Bible so you don't think I'm making it up. Paul says in Ephesians 1.4, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places in Christ, just as he chose us in him before the foundation of the world. Also, in 2 Thessalonians 2.13, he says this, But we should always give thanks to God for you, brethren, beloved by the Lord, because God has chosen you from the beginning for salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and faith in the truth. Church, these are Christ's own. These are the ones he has loved. These are the sheep that hear his voice and follow him. These are the ones that no one will be able to snatch out of his hand. These are those he will preserve and present back to the Father on that great day, blameless and spotless. It is for the elect that Jesus has lived perfectly. It is for the elect that Jesus has laid down his life. It is for the elect that he raised it up again, and it is for the elect that he will return. Who has Christ loved? He's loved his own. How has he loved them? 
This is not that sappy kind of cultural love that you, that you see on TikTok or Instagram. But the word used here is divine love. It's the love of volition. It's the love of the will. This is, this is the love of choice. This is the love that is unconditional, that loves even though the object don't deserve to be loved. This is the kind of love that is selfless. It seeks the supreme good of the object. It treats the object in such a way that everything it does is in the best interest of that object. This love is sacrificial. It brings about the good of the object regardless of what it may cost. Church, this is the way that, that he has loved his own. This is the way that he has loved the elect for Jesus has loved them because he has decided to. He loves them even though they don't deserve it. He loves them in a way that seeks their highest good. He loves them so much that he would die for their sins. And you see his love displayed clearly in the upcoming narrative as he dies for their sins. Church, before I move on to my final point, I dare not let you leave this truth in the abstract. You've heard people say these kind of words before and may not have moved you before, but I need you to see I need you to, to know that if you have experienced the wondrous grace of salvation, if you have uh, called on the name of the Lord and you've been saved, then this describes the manner in which Christ has loved you. Church, before our Lord ever said, let there be light, you were on his mind. Before he ever slung the stars in the sky, before he ever slung the sun and the moon into the heavens, he decided that he would love you. There's a passage that I love, one of my favorite, in Revelation 13, 8, where we read this, all who on the earth will worship him, everyone whose name has not been written from the foundation of the world in the book of the Lamb who has been slain. I, listen, I'm going to move on, and you're going you to be able to go to lunch. <laughs> Church, there's a book that has existed before the foundation of the world. This book is called the book of the lamb that was slain. This book has names written in it before ever the world was. If your name is in that book, that means even before he ever said, let there be light, the Trinity was whispering your name. Before ever the world was, he had you on his mind with his book in his hand to write it down in his book. Right. Hear me today. Don't just think of your faith as something that just happened. No, it was a divine decree that happened in time. Oh, no, let me tell you, he decided before the world ever was that he would love Ryan. Then he moved the events of Ryan's life such that Ryan would in time give him his life. Oh, blessed be the name of the Lord that he would love me that much, that he would decree my salvation and then in time bring about what he decreed. Blessed be his name. Oh, man, that's, that's doctrine that dances. 
That doctrine that dances in my heart. Yeah. That ought to make you joyful. Yeah. They couldn't help but clap. Just start clapping. You don't know why, but you're, you're hearing truth. And you know that it applies to you. You know that this is how Christ has loved you. So you raise your hands and with, with tears in your eyes, you say thank you. Thank you. All right. Dr. Felix ain't going to let me back if I get too, too ignorant in this <laughs> The willingness of Christ's love. The particularity of Christ's love. He has loved his his own. Yeah. The last aspect of Christ's love that I want to point out and then we'll go home is the completeness of Christ's love. The completeness. He doesn't do halfway jobs. Uh, you know how some of you guys do. You start a prize. How many times you have started a diet? Oh, I'm walking down your street now. How many of you times you done started a book? How many times you done started a Bible reading plan? And you five days, whew. And then you're like, well, I'm going to catch up. And then you look at the app and you 37 days behind. Oh, y'all laughing because it's hitting home. Let me tell you something. The way Christ has loved you ain't like that. It's not subpar and underdeveloped. But it is complete. Yeah. It is full. It is mature. Thank you, Lord. It is perfect. Look at one more time at the verse, and then I, I'll, I think I would have gotten out of it what I feel like God gave me in it. Jesus, knowing that his hour had come, that's his willingness. He would depart of this world to the Father, having loved his own. This is his, the particularity of his love. I love this last clause. I don't know. I love this last clause. He loved them to the end. Notice the, the, the extent of Jesus' love for us. It's found in that small little prepositional phrase, to the end. Traditionally, this phrase has been interpreted in two ways. First, it has been interpreted as referring to time. It's been interpreted temporally. Meaning that when John says that Jesus has loved them to the end, he means that Jesus has loved them in his unconditional, willing, selfless, and sacrificial way until the very end of his life. And that very well may be the case. But I think that it is used here adverbially. Well, what does that mean? I think to the end is modifying the way in which he loved you. I think it's pointing to the fact that, that, that Jesus has loved them in a particular kind of way. That phrase, to the end, y'all, and I hopefully I'll make it shout in a second. To the end can also be rendered he loved them completely. It can also be rendered he loved them to the uttermost. It also can be rendered, he loved them utterly. Oh, that ought to make you so happy. He loved them utterly. The older version of the NIV does more of a prayer phrase. It says it this way. He has now showed them the full extent of his love. 
John is describing to us the degree to which Jesus has loved his people. He is telling them the intensity with which he has loved them with. Church, John wants us to know that Christ has loved the disciples, but he will love them in the fullest extent possible. This love is about to be expressed to its fullest measure. The love of Christ is about to reach the climax of its expression in the love seen at the cross. Jesus said it this way, greater love has no man than this, that he will lay down his life for his what? For his brothers, for his friends. He loved them to the end. He loved them utterly. He loved them in a way that could not be a surpassed. He loved them by giving them himself. Romans 5, y'all are Bible church, I have to read scriptures. Romans 5, 7 through 8, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person. Though perhaps for a good person, one would dare to even die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. He couldn't have showed you more how much he loved you than when he hung on Calvary's cross. The fullest and most complete expression of Christ's love is seen when he who knew no sin became sin. It is seen when the just for the unjust die on a tree. It is seen when the spotless lamb was ransomed for sinful mankind by spilling his precious blood. It's this lens that you ought to see the foot washing through. He's not just trying to show you in the foot washing how you ought to be humble and love one another. That's there too. But he is, this, that, that is a, a, a representation of the way that he has loved us. It's a representation of how he has loved us to the uttermost. What did he do in the foot washing? Nobody wanted to wash one another's feet, so he took off his outer garments. And he wrapped himself with a towel. Last time I checked, when I know what, Christ, when I think about what Christ did, he was seated in heavenly glory. And he left those riches and he wrapped himself in the likeness of sinful flesh. Oh, and what did he do? He washed their feet. With the towel, he washed their feet. And then you, you get the, the heart of the passage. I'm, I'm done. You get the heart of the passage when he says, when Peter says, don't wash my feet. This is enough of this, Jesus. Stop. Don't wash my feet. And he looks at Peter. He said, Peter, you'll realize what I'm doing now, but you'll know later. Then Peter says, you'll never wash my feet. Peter, you'll have no part with me if you don't wash my feet. If you don't wash, if you don't let me wash your feet. (laughs) He says, well, you know what? Wash all of me then. What's the point? Jesus telling him, listen, this is pointing to something that is bigger than just this mere feat. I'm pointing to the fact that you will not have any part with me unless I actually die a death in service of you. Oh, church, Jesus has loved us. He's loved us to the uttermost. Why, why, Why are you giving your heart to something or someone else? 
Why are you giving your affections, your time, your energy, your talent, your resources to anyone or anything else when no one can or will ever love you this way? I'm done. Church, people have failed you, but Christ has loved you. Know that your life, has dis- though it has disappointed you in some ways, Christ has loved you. Look at his willingness. Look at his, the particularity of his love. Look at the extent and completeness of his love and allow the joy of your heart to bubble over to know that you've been saved by amazing grace. Allow the Spirit of God to move you to heartfelt worship. The words of the great hymn is what I'll close with, Brother Glenn. But Brother Glenn, oh Lord my God, when I in awesome wonder consider all the world thy hands have made. I see the stars. I hear the rolling thunder. Thy power throughout the universe displayed. And when I think that God his son not sparing sent him to die I scarce can take it in that on the cross my burden gladly bury he bled and died to take away my sin when Christ shall come with shout of acclamation and take me home what joy will fill my heart then I shall bow in humble adoration and then proclaim my God how great Thou our church, how great he is, how great he is. And may we love him, adore him, because he has loved you willingly. He has loved you particularly, and he has loved you completely. May the Lord God bless you all real, real good. Amen, amen.